Hey there, welcome back to the High Heat Stats Podcast, brought to you by BaseballReference.com's Play Index. If you'd like to save $3 on a Play Index membership, just go to BaseballReference.com slash Play Index, put in the coupon code HHS when you sign up, and you will save 3 bucks off your subscription. Stay tuned to this podcast to hear all sorts of examples of how you can use the Play Index to do all kinds of interesting and fun things. Thanks for listening. This is episode number two. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the High Heat Stats podcast. I'm Andy. I am the editor and founder of High Heat Stats, highheatstats.com. When we recorded our first podcast, we didn't know whether we'd be coming back or not, but here we are. Uh, We had a lot of fun the first time around, and we got a lot of good ratings on iTunes and things like that. Uh, You guys seemed to enjoy it. We enjoyed it, so we are back. And I have brought with me some familiar folks. Uh, first, we have Dalton Mack. Dalton, how you doing? Not too bad. A uh, little, uh, little, little sweaty. Gonna be honest. Just got back from the gym. The air conditioner's not working in here. Uh, I gotta say, the uh, the sweat uh, on my undercarriage could probably irrigate a small radish farm. It's it's rough. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that is the best form of irrigation for a uh, radish garden. But uh, thanks for sharing. You make do with what you uh, got. We also have uh, Adam Dorowski with us. Hi, Adam. Hello. No, uh, no radish farms in your house. Well, I was just thinking that I was working up a sweat mowing the lawn about an hour ago, but now I'm just working up a sweat, just thinking about Dalton sitting there being a radish farmer or whatever the hell he's doing. This this is rapidly going to a bad place. So. We will move right along to Dan McCluskey, who joins us live for the first time. Hello, Dan. Hey, Andy. How's it going? <laughs> Good. And and sorry for mispronouncing your name on the previous podcast. No, that's fine. That's fine. It's a, I did not know. It's a common uh, a common error. So Dan had had not been able to join us live last time um, because of a schedule conflict. And those of you who heard last time will notice that Brian O'Connor is not here this time. Uh, Brian has a conflict going on right now and in general we're probably going to try to keep these to a maximum of four people anyway so there's likely to be a little bit of rotating going on uh as we as we move through uh the podcast season so just to talk a little bit about what uh listeners can expect today the format is going to be similar to what we did last time not quite the same we're going to have three segments in today's show that are more or less the same three segments we had last time. First one will be some discussion about what's going on right now in the 2013 season. The second segment is going to be some interesting stats uh, revealed using BaseballReference.com play index searches. 
today we're going to be focusing on some some of the more unusual stats and maybe some some of these somewhat more obscure players or obscure things that you never had really thought about that you can learn with that. And in segment three, just like last week, we're going to have a more open discussion. Uh, this week we're going to be focusing on the very touchy subject of wins above replacement, better known as war, and just how that really is determined and what it really means and how useful it is and criticisms of it and uh, lots of different things. Uh, we will not be doing trivia today, which we had in the last podcast. What we decided to do was to shuttle that out into its own podcast so that this one can be kept a little bit shorter. We can focus a little bit more on these three segments, and then the trivia can get sort of a bigger showing in its own podcast. So um, let's uh, let's move into talking about the 2013 season, and I'm, I'm going to kick off a little bit. I like to keep tabs on Chris Carter and just how often he's striking out. It's it's kind of remarkable. Um, through a day or two ago, when I worked up these numbers, Carter has 103 strikeouts in 233 at-bats so far this year. That is 44.2% of his at-bats that he is striking out in. Among all players in history to qualify for the batting title, the record is held by Mark Reynolds in 2010. He struck out in 42.3% of his at-bats. It was 211 strikeouts and 499 at-bats. So, again, Reynolds has the record at 42.3. Carter is putting into shame, uh, or, or maybe reducing his shame, at 44.2%, and that may or may not hold for the year. But, but to give you an idea... Uh, the record for the most at-bats in a season where a guy managed to strike out 44.2% or more was by Cody Ransom last year. He only had 168 at-bats and struck out 79 times. So what Carter is doing is uh, not really very easy to maintain over the course of a season, but it's, it's in the air quotes, it's impressive in that way. Um, now, I'm curious what you guys think about this. Whenever I bring up strikeouts and the increase in strikeouts and all the, you know, the, how strikeout records are falling and average lead strikeouts are increasing every single year for the last several years and are higher this year than they were last year, I get a lot of people on Twitter who are complaining, oh, it's not the way it used to be and I don't like the way the game is today and, and, uh, various complaints of those sorts. And my feeling is, like, it just is what it is. The game is changing all the time. And if you look back at the 100-plus year history, you see all sorts of stats that go up and down or, or up continuously over a long period of time or down continuously. I don't really have a strong feeling about it. Do, do you guys have a different opinion? What do you think about when you see all these strikeouts? My favorite player of all time is Pete Caviglia, so strikeouts never really bothered me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, that that last part you said about how, um, you know, people feel like they don't enjoy the game as much. Um, unless somebody wants to chime in about strikeouts, I, I wanted to throw something out, out there about a part of the game that I'm really enjoying a lot lately. Because I'm kind of 
viewing the game through the eyes of a five-year-old right now because he's just discovering it. My five-year-old son is really just discovering it and falling in love with it the last couple of years. And uh, what we do now before bed is we watch um, the MLB.com playlist of the must-see clips. Defense lately is unbelievable. It's so exciting to watch. And I, I find it hard to believe that the game is not as much fun to watch. I love the new focus on defense because I feel like we're seeing incredible plays left and right now. Yeah, I think that that relates back to strikeouts as well because – I think a lot of players are trying to really not hit the ball into the infield if they can help it and are swinging harder and swinging with more of an uppercut because defense is so much better than it has ever been at any point in the past. So I think those two things are related. But but I like your overall point, which sort of is the point I was trying to make, which is that there's always something exciting going on in baseball. Yeah, strikeouts are up and, and, and home runs remain up and batting average is down, but but it's always because the game is this large sort of amorphous thing that is changing, and there's always something new and always something exciting happening. Yeah, I'm kind of of the uh, it-is-what-it-is attitude that you are as well. But, it, you know, the one thing that I'm curious about is why haven't the, uh, the anti-sabermetricians uh, chimed in on this one? I took a look. Um, I kind of charted strikeout percentage, walk percentage, um, and home run percentage. Over the course of the last, uh, what is it, uh, uh, math is failing me for a second, back to 1988, so that would be uh, about, the last, about the last 25 years. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, basically the, the simple trend is that strikeouts are increasing, uh, walks are actually down a little bit, and, um, you know, home runs have fluctuated over that time period, but, you know, not really not really up, not really down. The the year that I kind of picked, and I, and I don't think Cherry picked to compare it to, is uh, 2002, so we're looking at a little more than a decade ago. Um, strikeouts are up from 16.8% to 19.9%. That's pretty significant. Walks are down, and these 2013 stats are as of a few days ago, but they're really similar to the 2012 stats. Walks are down from 8.7 to 79 and um, home runs are uh, actually down a little bit as well, from 2.71 to 2.63 percent. So not to beat a dead horse on the you know the Dustin Ackley thing or the the pitch selection thing, but what really has become the advantage of players being more selective, taking more pitches, and of course, yeah, they're driving the pitch counts up. But honestly, the you know the, the the reward has not has not been there, and you know from watching the Yankees and the Red Sox over the course of, uh, of the last however many years, you know I was actually up until about a year or so ago of the of the belief that walks were up as as much as strikeouts were, and 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 I and I was just totally shocked because I wasn't really paying close enough attention that they're not. So what you know? So what is? And, and everyone wants to say that that the strikeouts are up because guys are swinging for the fences, but home runs. And I'm not comparing, you know, back to, you know, the real heyday of, uh, you know, back in, um, what is it? So 2000 home runs were 2.99 percent. I mean, I'm not even looking that far back, and home runs are not up. So, 
I think your points are good points, but I think one of the key things that is a little bit different, and if you looked, I think if, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you look comparing 2013 to 2002 or whatever, I think you'll see that home runs as a percentage of plate appearances are similar, but home runs as a percentage of hits is way up, which definitely does indicate a, a greater tendency on the part of batters to try to hit home runs, I think. But I think your point is valid of what is it actually getting you? What is it actually accomplishing? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm really kind of playing devil's advocate here more than anything. I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, I'm, I'm all, I'm a total advocate of working the count and getting yourself in good counts and, and the fact that obviously that a walk is a valuable commodity, but you know, when you really look at the numbers, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of wondering. Listen, I, I'm there with you. I mean, we're a stats website, a stats podcast, but I think that, as we said last week, Wedge's comments, um, you know, you referenced Ackley. I think that, I think that they have a certain amount of validity, in the sense that, you know, the home run is a less important thing now than it used to be as run scoring gets lower. The ability to make contact is getting more important, and the ability to to hit the pitch when you get the pitch, I think, is going to become more important. And I think that's just sort of another way of saying what you're what you're saying. It's a it's a good point. Yeah, and as for strikeouts, uh, I was just looking at some of the data here, and what I felt is that you know throughout the course of you know my life as a baseball fan, as short as that may be, it feels that. There are just more guys striking out with just huge amount of strikeout numbers. You know, Bobby Bonds held the single-season strikeout record forever. And now it's not uncommon if two guys every year have over 200 strikeouts. Now, obviously, that comes as strikeouts rise, but it just seems like there's a much higher amount of players whiffing all the time. Looking in the last, you know, 13, 14 seasons, uh, per 162 games this year, 105 players are on pace for 100-plus strikeouts. And those are all guys qualifying for the batting title, so no no pitchers, obviously, included in this. And you look back a decade in 2003, and only 65 players uh, had that same rate of 100 strikeouts per 162 games. And then even on the more extreme side, uh, with, uh, say, 150-plus, 41 guys who qualify for the batting title are on pace to strike out 150 or more times. You know, 20... 30, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, 150 strikeouts could have led the league. It's very possible. But, you know, like you mentioned with Chris Carter, the guy uh, could strike out 225, 235 times. It's, it's, it's really amazing how just individual players, the number has just skyrocketed. And in general, I think, you know, in terms of you were saying how I guess fans don't enjoy the game as much now because of the higher strikeouts, I suppose that's coming from the perspective of fans who were mainly offense focused, and I can't necessarily blame them. As you know, even just making contact is more exciting than whiffing. But there's something to be said, for, you know, the beauty of just a, a, a really good pitcher who's able to just get these guys out with a variety of uh, you know off-speed stuff or, or blazing heat. It, you know, it just depends how you look at the game. Piggybacking on what you just said and getting back to a point that Dan made in the last 365 days. Nobody has 100 walks. Prince Fielder has the most with 95. Uh, I mean, it used to be that you'd have, you know, guys walking, a few guys walking 100 times every year. 
Uh, last year, I think we only had one or two. I don't have it in front of me, but it was very few. And this year, there might be none. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think another part of it, well, there's a couple things I wanted to touch on. I mean, strikeouts just aren't stigmatized anymore. I mean, they're, they're accepted as part of the game. And that's sabermetrics, too, well, right? I mean, point, it was yeah. sabermetricians sort of in the 80s and 90s who started to say, you know, this thought, from the 1970s, that strikeouts are bad and are to be avoided at all costs and choke up a foot on the uh, on the bat and all that, uh, they said, you know, strikeouts aren't necessarily the worst thing. They're a hell of a lot better than a double play. Yeah, and I think the other part of that, too, is, you know, I mentioned earlier that, I, you know, I love defense. The defense that we see is is so good. And when you're employing a lot more defensive players, they're not going to hit as well and they're going to strike out a little bit more. So I think that can be part of it, too. But I think teams are realizing that if you have a, a Nolan Arenado at third base, who's, you know, a pretty good hitter, too, but, my God, his defense. Like, if you have a player like that, he's going to strike out a little bit more, but he's going to save you 25 runs a year on defense. Yeah, his his, his defensive numbers this year are just incredible. Um, I'd be curious to see if he can maintain those. Um, so... Let me make one other point um, about strikeouts, which is sort of related, but kind of is a little interesting puzzle here. Um, If you look historically at strikeout rates going all the way back to the beginning of the American League, so going back to 1901, basically strikeout rates in the American League and the National League were the same. In any given year, one league might have been a little bit higher than the other, but there's statistically no difference over a long period of time. Uh, pretty much averages out until you get to the era of the DH. And then, as you might expect, strikeouts are consistently higher in the National League uh, because, of course, the pitcher is batting. And in the American League, you have the designated hitter batting. And a designated hitter might be a guy who strikes out a lot, but he doesn't strike out as much as pitchers strike out, which is just a ton. And so in every single season – from 1973 until last year, strikeouts are higher in the National League, and they're higher by about an average of 7%, so it's not some tiny number. They are higher every single season by an average of about 7%, except this year. Very, very oddly, this year, strikeouts are higher in the American League than they are in the National League. Now, for all intents and purposes, they're tied. 7.57 per game in the American League, 7.55 in the National League. But they've never, you know, the American League has never had a higher number, nor have they ever been tied. This is by far the strangest year we've ever seen with regards to strikeouts. So I I started, you know, I tried to ask myself, why is that happening? Um, And I first started thinking about the different schedule we have this year. Because of the Astros' move to the American League and there being 15 teams in each league, there are interleague games going on all the time. From the very beginning of the season, there has always been one interleague series going on until recently when there have been interleague series uh, going on with with all or most teams every day. Um, And I thought to myself, well, interleague games tend to even out strikeout rates because the American and National Leagues are playing under the same rules for those games. And so, you know, when, they're, when they're, you don't have that difference of the DH, tend to get more similar rates. And I thought, well, maybe that that 
was it. Um, and it is true that the National League batters um, strike out less in the interleague games than they do in their own intra-National League games. But when I looked into it, there just wasn't enough of an effect there to to explain it. Um, the second theory is also Astros-related, which is that the Astros are terrible. Um, they are absolutely, absolutely terrible. The other 14 American League teams, who are not the Astros, are averaging 7.41 strikeouts per game. The Astros are averaging 9.47 strikeouts per game. And that's about a full strikeout higher than the next team, which is the Red Sox, which are you know, down roughly around eight and a half. The Astros are way, way, way off the charts, and they are totally skewing the numbers. Because that 7.41 number for the rest of the American League is significantly below where the National League is at 7.55 and will be consistent with the differences we've seen in other years. It seems that the Astros, who are just so terrible, are completely throwing things off. And if they were in the National League, the National League would be way ahead in strikeouts this year as they have been um, every year since the DH. So that seems to be the primary reason. But there is also a third reason which plays into it, which is that it is definitely true that, once again, American League pitching is better than National League pitching. So if you if you look at National League and Interleague games, they have a 406 ERA. American League and Interleague games has a 359 ERA. And those games are those those games are split, obviously. In half those games, both pitchers are facing the opposing pitcher as a batter, and in half those games, they're facing the DH. Right. Um, I don't have it broken down by home game in in the National League or American League, but the data the data are clear, and, I, and the data have been clear for years that American League pitchers have been better than National League pitchers consistently. It's just not clear why. I used to think, well, you know, you could pick out certain guys, you know, in, in years past. You could pick out, oh, there's, you know, Halliday was in the American League and Verlander and Sabathia and all these guys. And I thought it's just a statistical oddity. But you can't have that year after year after year that it just so happens that all the best pitchers or, or most of the best pitchers are in the American League. It's just not it's just statistically so improbable that it can't be the case. So I don't, I don't know that that question has really been answered, why American League pitchers seem better. I agree completely, Adam. Yeah, I'm on board. Ship it. Okay, moving on, we're going to take a look at some of the cool things we can find with the BaseballReference.com Play Index. As you probably know, Baseball Reference graciously sponsors this podcast, and even if they didn't, I think we would still be interested in pointing out some of the cool things that you can do with it. You can really learn a lot about the game, uh, both on the really hardcore analysis side and just on the frivolous fun side and you can find things about players you maybe never heard of or 
learn something about players you know really well, but that you never knew about them. So we're going to give you a few examples of that. And uh, Dan, why don't you kick us off? All right. Well, I use the uh, the season finder, focusing on entire careers. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my emphasis here uh, as with my little editorial last week on the walk. So I was kind of interested in finding players who basically got a good percentage, a high percentage of their of their batting value from walks. So the first thing I did was uh, I looked for players with an on-base percentage greater than 1.5 times their batting average, with, of course, with a minimum of 3,000 plate appearances. And, you know, somewhat surprisingly, you get only, you only get 10 results from that. Um, but then I wanted to focus it a little bit further than that, and I wanted to get rid of uh, guys that uh, basically had pretty good power in there. So by adding the requirement of uh, ISO uh, less than or equal to 0.15 or 0.150, that ditched the uh, one of Adam's favorite players, Gene Tennis, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Mickey Tettleton and uh, one of everyone's favorite players, Adam Dunn, and uh, – reduced our set to seven guys. And four of them are named Eddie, by the way, which I find fascinating. And that's probably the most statistically significant thing that I'm going to say all night. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but anyway, moving on. Um, I wanted to narrow it even further because I wanted to look at these guys that basically um, did all this, you know, relied their – their offensive performance relied mostly on on-base percentage as opposed to power or even straight batting average, but were also above-average offensive players. So I added in the OPS plus greater than or equal to 105, feeling like that's a, that's a good benchmark for above-average, for you know, being able to say this guy is you know, clearly above-average as opposed to 100 to 104 being maybe just a little bit above-average. And that narrowed it down to three guys. Anyone want to guess who those three guys are? No, I'm just kidding. Um, two of them are named Eddie. Eddie Yost and Eddie Stanky. Um, Willie Randolph? Nope. Damn nope. <laughs> Yank Robinson. Yank. Yeah. Is it okay That's to say... Eddie. Is it okay to say Yank on this it, uh, on this podcast, Andrew? In that in that context, it's just fine. Is it, it is okay to say Yank. Okay. Yes. So my guy, my my obscure uh, underrated guy is of course Eddie Yost, who had a forty five point nine career offensive WAR, and actually somewhat he, he rates kind of poorly on the defensive metrics, which knock him down to thirty four point three overall. But his Sabre bio calls him a slick fielding third baseman, so I guess there's you know there's some dispute there. And, you know, I want to say perhaps he wasn't actually underrated during his playing days, but uh, but he still was only selected to one all-star team. I feel like he was historically underrated. He didn't even appear on the all-star ballot, despite being an everyday player for 14 years and a leadoff hitter in approximately 8,000 of 9,000 career plate appearances. And, uh, you know, further, further evidence that he's not uh, historically well thought of is he ranks just ahead of Orlando Cabrera, in the baseball reference, Elo Raider. So, 
So another interesting thing about Eddie Yost is he never played in the minor leagues. And part of the reason for that was because of the GI Bill of Rights. And I'll explain. Uh, he had a brief cup of coffee uh, with the senators um, at age 17 before going off to World War II. And upon his return, the senators wanted to return to the minor leagues, but they weren't allowed to by law. So because the GI Bill of Rights essentially guaranteed returning veterans their jobs, they had to keep them in the major leagues. And Yost even wanted to go to the minor leagues, and he petitioned the commissioner or the league president, Happy Chandler at the time, to allow him to, and uh, and they and it wasn't allowed. So anyway, just a little interesting tidbit about uh, about Eddie Yost. And my other thing that I find fascinating about Eddie Yost is that I was surprised to hear last year um, when he died that he's not at all related to Ned Yost. I mean, am I the only person that just assumed that Eddie Yost was Ned Yost's father? I don't know. I Probably. never thought about it. <laughs> okay. I, I would have thought maybe related to Dennis Yost of the Classic Four. Again, I'm dating myself, but you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know who you're talking about. Uh, uh, just uh, you know, uh, like spookier every day with you, girl. Sixties music. Just, oh, okay. Uh, just briefly sidestepping here, folks. <laughs> there is another Yost who played in the majors, Gus Yost, who played right. with the Cubs in 1893. Right, right. Only three Yosts in Major League history. Yeah. You know, something that I thought was interesting was you said that his Sabre Bios is a slick fielder, whereas the the uh, numbers don't really back that up. So I was just curious to, to see why that might be. And um, I... When I hear that, I guess that he probably had a good fielding percentage, but maybe not a good range factor, and that seems to hold true. Um, his uh, fielding percentage was slightly above league average, while his range factor was significantly below uh, league average, and that seems to be uh, evidenced in his negative 112 runs by total zone. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I seem to recall reading that he that he he led in a lot of defensive categories, um, including you know fielding percentage. That was state of the art back then. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. All right, um, why don't we uh, hop on down the line, Dalton? What do you have for us? All right. Well, like I mentioned earlier, and as I assume if someone follows me on Twitter or other forms of social media, you can tell I'm a big music fan. I'll tell you how this relates. Always in- interested in, you know, one-hit wonders. You know, you got your, your take on me or Come On Eileen from the 80s. Everyone knows those. But I do lament the fact there are some songs from 69 to 73, I'd say, that era, that I feel will be forgotten by time. Like, you know, Nice to Be With You by Gallery or Love Can Make You Happy by Mercy. And I feel it the same way with baseball. I'm looking at guys from 96 to 2008, Guys with very, very good seasons, sort of one-hit wonder seasons. Uh, these seasons, uh, under my uh, parameters, are hitters with 5.5 war or more in the given season or pitchers with five or more, and the rest of their career having, or just their total career, rather, having 17.5 war or less. So we're looking for, you know, one-hit wonder players, essentially. And I chose to go from 1996 to 2008, just because these are guys that have a chance of being fresh in people's memory. I mean, you know, if I pulled a guy from the 40s, you know, it'd be neat, but, you know, you can't be like, oh, you know, I really remember that guy, you know, unless you remember him from an encyclopedia. 
So a couple of the guys I wanted to point out here. I'll start with a few pitchers. Justin Thompson for the Tigers mm. in 1997. 15 and 11, because we know how important one loss is, uh, with a 302 ERA and a 152 ERA plus. In 97, very much in a hitting era. Not quite the peak of it, which would come two to three, four years later. But he put up 7.7 wins above replacement. Uh, this is baseball reference war. And for his career, never had a three-war season again and finished with a total of 13 war. Uh, another guy like that, Joe Mays. And this guy, I completely, I guess, missed, missed the boat on this. was 12 years ago, 2001. Uh, went 17 and 13 for the Minnesota Twins with a 3.16 ERA. Led the league, not an ERA, but an ERA plus, with 1.43, and that was good for a 6.7 WAR season. Uh, but then again, for a career, only nine WAR. And these guys, I feel, except to maybe hardcore baseball fans such as yourselves, really, that the mainstream has completely forgotten about. And these were fantastic seasons. And I think another thing going along with that is that they didn't have these eye-popping win-loss disparities, you know, uh, with Thompson and Mays both having only four more wins than losses. On the hitting side of things... But before you go on, those two pitchers have one thing in common that stuck out in my mind right away, um, which is the classic Bill James uh, criterion for sort of unsustainability for starting pitcher success which is that they did not have high strikeout rates. Mays in particular. Yeah, he was um, 4.7, I believe. Yeah, that year, exactly. He was 4.7 per nine innings, and then by the next year he fell down to 3.6, 3.5, and, you know, when you're that far below league average, it's just not going to get it done. Thompson was more like right around league average, um, but again, the starting pitchers who – do really well over long periods of time are usually above average in strikeouts. So it's interesting that there's uh, that there's a correlation there. Sorry I jumped in here. Let's hear about your hitters. Can I just jump in uh, one more thing about Justin Thompson, though, yeah. as we cut Dalton off again? Um, so I, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that you know he had a, that really high ERA plus compared to his ERA, which was a more modest 3.02. It wasn't quite the full steroid era yet, I guess. But... Um, he played in Tiger Stadium, not Comerica Park, and I think that that is definitely worth noting there. Right, right. That was more impressive. Yeah. As for the hitters, uh, it was harder to find uh, guys like this. It just, just seemed to be the case. The few I picked out, one guy who I remember as a, I guess, mediocre uh, middle infielder, Marcus Giles, uh, of course, brother of Brian Giles, he had a season where he put up 7.8 wins above replacement. That was 2003. Uh, OPS plus of 136. Actually did receive some MVP votes, which was good. Whereas, you know, on paper, his numbers were not spectacular, but very good. 21 homers, uh, a 316 batting average, 526 on base. A very good season. But his drop was huge. I mean, 2004-2005, he had put up decent seasons, no question about it. But after that, just kept his strikeout rate went up, he stopped walking as much, and the power, which was not huge to begin with, seemed to completely fall off. And the other guy, I got, I got a bunch of them, but I don't want to bore you with too many. 
the other guy is Kevin Young, uh, played primarily for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates throughout, mm. throughout the 90s and early aughts uh, with a quick cup of coffee in KC. His 99 season, uh, again, and along with Giles, what helped here was that he had probably his best defensive season, which of course is going to help for a war here. But again, and I think it's the fact that defense was big for these guys that owes the fact that they're forgotten because generally, if a guy's going to be remembered for one season, like everyone remembers Joe Charbonneau's rookie year because he's a, a true one and done there. But then again, not great war numbers like any of these guys, plus it was his rookie year. But John, uh, Kevin Young in 1999 uh, hit 298 with about a 522 slugging, 128 OPS plus uh, 100 RBIs, which, you know, just uh, purely a storytelling statistic, and 17 fielding runs that year to go along with 28 batting runs. Gave him a 5.5 war, and in the entire rest of his career, put up 0.4 war over about uh, 11 seasons or, or half seasons in there. And, you know, as for the play index, found this uh, just searching for players. Uh, between 96 and 08 with 5.5 war for the batters, five for pitchers or more in a season, saving that list and then uh, looking for guys with 17 and a half or fewer war. Um, use just like of the players from that list. It's one of the features you can do over there on the play index. Yeah. The, when you do a, uh, when you do a season finder for pitchers or batters, you can use any save list that came from any of the other uh, any a season finder or a game finder or a streak finder, any of the other tools, and it will search on those players' names only. Now, that thing about Kevin Young, I knew where you were going with that because I had previously discovered something interesting about him, which is basically the same thing you discovered. Before Baseball Reference changed their their replacement level, that they used for the wins above replacement calculation. I'm sure we're going to touch on this in the next segment. Before they made that change, Kevin Young was the only player in history with a career of his length, which is, you know, he had a pretty good career, about eight or nine, uh, 12 yeah, seasons. Yeah, dozen like. seasons, yeah. Um, he was the only player who had more wins above replacement in one season than he had in his entire career. Um, with that adjustment now, as you say, he had 5.5 in 1999 and 5.9 in his career. He actually used to be negative for the whole rest of his career. He was the only guy. So uh, that's an interesting one. Dalton, do you have more, or should we move on? It just, you know, one of those things where guys had some pretty good seasons, and, you know, it was part of my growing up watching baseball. And, you know, guys I'd rather, I suppose, have the, the world not forget about. Uh, Adam, what do you have for us? Well, I actually, I just want to touch on uh, Dalton's hitters really quickly as oh, well. Sure. I assumed that um, what he was going to bring us was a list of um, mediocre players who had one total outlier season and their defensive metrics, which would then boost their war. But it's funny because Kevin Young is actually the complete opposite. Uh, his outlier season there is in the hitting because he was typically a really good defender. Uh, he had three seasons of 10 or more uh, total zone runs, but that was his only season above eight runs at the plate, and he had 28, so it's pretty impressive. All right, so I uh, 
ended up choosing a guy who uh, is not obscure and is, in fact, in the Hall of Fame. So that's uh, kind of the antithesis of obscure. So this is a a guy named Kirby Puckett. All right. So I was uh, doing a play index search on the Minnesota Twins, and I just happened to search for the most fielding runs a twin slash senator had in a single season. And I got Kirby Puckett in his rookie season, 1984. He had 30 runs by total zone. So I clicked through to Kirby, and then I saw that Kirby is also the owner of a negative 29 total zone season, which seemed really weird to me. So I looked, and sure enough, he also had the worst season ever for a twin slash senator by total zone. That was 1993 when he was 33 years old. And uh, just to go... Back to the ranking. So I, I use the play index to see uh, where those two seasons ranked. And there are only 23 seasons better than his 30-run season and only seven worse than the negative 29 season. So both seasons were, like, historic but on opposite sides of the spectrum. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And what is the trend for the rest of Puckett's career on defense? I mean, is he all over the place, or was there a general trend from good to bad? Or Puckett is typically all over the place. His first two seasons, he was phenomenal. Then he dropped significantly below average for a couple of seasons. Then he was kind of up and down, up and down. In fact, 93 was the really bad season. 92 and 94 were above average. So it's kind of all over the place. But I... I I went to another site that I enjoy to to look up some numbers uh, as to why he might have had a a big difference between the start and end of his career. And uh, Kirby Puckett's 1985 Topps card lists him as 175 pounds. I got this from uh, uh, checkoutmycards.com. So I went to Kirby Puckett's 1994 Topps card, and that lists him at 220. So that, that's, uh, you know, a 45-pound difference on, on the same guy, guy's frame just in the course of, you know, a dozen seasons. So and and he was not that tall. That's, a, that's yeah. a lot of weight for a shorter guy. Yeah, it is. Apparently he grew an inch, uh, but uh, also gained 45 pounds. The, the other thing that plays into your theory there is that, if I remember correctly, he was shunted gradually to right field. Um, from center field, and if uh, Tom Kelly didn't think he was good enough to play center field, there was probably a reason, so makes sense. Yeah, both of those seasons that I mentioned were predominantly uh, center field. The, the two seasons after it, he played right field. Okay. Also, with, uh, with Kirby Puckett, I believe uh, he was the only player, it certainly last, I think, uh, 50 years, possibly ever, to have a zero home run season and uh, with obviously qualifying for the batting title, as well as a season with 30 or more home runs. Yeah. And he did them like two seasons apart. It was 84 and 86. Exactly. Yeah. And he only had four in the season between. Yeah. Yeah. You would have thought for sure it would have been 87 the year that he had 30, but his home runs actually went down that year to 28. That's uh, in the year that everybody was hitting home runs. I'm, Unless, Adam, you have anything else, I want to jump in with my contribution. Go for it. I actually have two, and uh, I'll pick this one first for reasons that will become obvious. I was looking at at Yadier Molina's numbers. Uh, He's 
batting, you know, he's last I looked, he was way up there in the National League in batting average, but he doesn't really get on base by many other means, and he had a very small gap between his batting average and his on-base percentage. And I thought I would just take a look at guys. I think I went back to 1901 with this one when the season finder, and I looked at guys who had the smallest difference between their batting average and their on-base percentage for those who hit a minimum of 350. So I was looking at guys who had a great batting average, but basically didn't get on base by any other means. Does anybody have a guess who has the season with the smallest difference between on-base and batting average for a minimum of 300, uh, 350 batting average? Throughout history? Yeah. I'll give you a clue. We were talking about him recently. Is it a percent? You mean a percent difference or like? No, it's a point difference. This guy only had 19 points difference. Uh, Well, I'll just tell you, it was Kirby Puckett. (laughs) (laughs) Since we were just going through all his unusual stats. In 1988, (laughs) he batted 356 with only a 375 on base percentage, only a 19 point difference. And that's because he uh, didn't really walk very much at all. I mean, he was not a great walker in his career in general, but he only walked 23 times playing 158 games, which is uh, just unbelievably small total. And he also had a bunch of sack flies, other things that play into that. A um, few other guys who are on this list, uh, Ty Cobb actually comes in with just a 30-point difference um, in 1907. Ichiro comes in with a 31-point difference um, in 2001. Willie McGee had a 31-point difference in 85. And a bunch of other players uh, from much earlier in the last century. Um, just thought that one was interesting. That wasn't actually my my real one that I wanted to do. When I heard that Adam was doing something about Puckett, I thought, hey, well, I throw in my favorite Puckett one, too. So, um let me go to my actual um, stat that I wanted to contribute. I used, again, the split finder from the play index, which I find to be just the greatest thing ever. They added it earlier this year, and um, it enables you to look up all kinds of things that are really amazing. We, we talked about a bunch of them in the last show. Um, but here's an interesting one. So I looked at the last 30 years, from so from 1983 on, guys who hit a minimum of 50 career homers and who hit the highest percentage of their homers in high leverage situations. So we know that, you know, there's no such thing as clutch, let's say, but I'm always curious to see, you know, a home run is not a home run. They're not all equal. And I was curious to see which guys were hitting them when they really counted. Um, I have the top 10 here. Anybody just want to take a guess? This is a hard, um, these are not, these are not the players who might necessarily come to mind initially, but anybody want to take a guess at someone we might see? Highest percentage of home runs in high-leverage situations? Well, Miguel Cabrera, of course. Yeah. He's not on there. Yeah. Um, these guys... Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff is not on there either. And I'll tell you this much. By setting the, by setting the home run threshold so low, it's mostly guys who have a relatively low number of career home runs. Um, because I guess they are somewhat statistically outlying a little bit. Jesse Barfield. <laughs> no, so even lower than that. So Jim Eisenreich is actually number one. 
Um, and Phillies fans will probably remember that, that he hit a few pretty key home runs for them. Phillies fans will also remember the third guy on this list, Ricky Jordan. Oh, man. Who had a short career, um, only a few years where he really played full-time. But in those years, um, in 88, 89, uh, he hit some really serious game-winning home runs for the Phillies. And... Uh, Phillies fans will remember that too. Some other guys who come up here on the uh, on the high list: uh, Bobby Kilty, Derek May, Brian Schneider, and uh, Shane Spencer, Cards manager Mike Matheny, uh, everybody's favorite rookie of the year, Bob Hamlin, and uh, Pedro Alvarez is on there too. Actually, um, I also just for the heck of it looked up the low list uh, to see who hit the highest percentage of their home runs in low-leverage situations, and, um, sorry? Alex Rodriguez, of course. Yeah, well, again, A-Rod's had too many home runs to veer too much from the league averages, Uh, so most of those guys who've hit a lot of home runs tend to be pretty close to the middle, uh, just because they hit so many. Uh, Scott Service actually comes in at the bottom. Again, this is 1983 on minimum 50 home runs. 60.3% of his home runs were in low leverage, as were for Phil Bradley, also 60.3%. Uh, but another guy who comes to mind here is Christian Guzman, um, who's always struck me as a guy who never actually produced as much as his numbers suggested, and I was somewhat interested to see him on here. Um, Bobby Grish fans will not be happy to know that 58.9% of his home runs came in low leverage. And That's, that's uh, not his entire career, though, right? Oh, that's, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, That's, that's good, only the tail end of his career. Yeah, that's not Very, his, his Orioles days. Yeah, and you know, I should say, same but, is true for Bradley and Webster, who both had years before 83. I'm glad you, uh, glad you pointed that out. Yeah, Grish with the Orioles is just a monster. Yeah. Kevin Seitz is another guy who makes this list, and his his whole career is post post eighty three. Um, anyway, so that's just uh, another example of something you can do with the play index. So that's a regular feature we'll be bringing back in the future. We'll look at some other different sorts of things you can discover with them. We will change the topic from podcast to podcast. So that's something you can look for in the future. Moving on, we're going to take a look today at wins above replacement, also known as war. This is a very controversial statistic because for a lot of people, it is absolutely impenetrable in terms of how it is calculated, what does it really mean, when you throw a number out there, how much confidence can I have in in what that number really means. What's the difference between offensive war, defensive war? Why are there different websites that have different numbers? A lot of people who are really railing against the statistic for reasons that I can understand because they are really having to take it on faith. So I thought that we would open up a discussion here about what wins above replacement really is, 
what it means, what it can tell us, what it can't tell us, how useful is it. Uh, maybe try to poke some holes in it a little bit and talk about how we use it. And I thought it would make a lot of sense to have Adam lead this discussion initially because of his experience with the Hall of Stats. It's obviously something he has looked into in great detail. So I'm going to hand it over to Adam to start us off with a little bit of background, and then we will get into the discussion from there. Adam? All right, thanks. Well, the first thing I'll say is that war is not a statistic. War is a framework. And uh, I think Sean Foreman uh, really said it well when he compared it to something like gross domestic product, where there are different ways to calculate it, but it's trying to say the same thing. It's just that there's different implementations, and I think that's okay as long as we accept that. So let's go into how war comes together. All right, so the currency of baseball is runs. You get the most runs, you win. So what war does is it breaks down everything that a player does, like from all aspects of the game, and gives it a run value. And how much that specific event, whether it's a hit, whether it's a great defensive play, varies depending on the scoring environment. So, you know, in a low run scoring environment, a hit can be worth more than in a, in a high run scoring environment. So let, let's look at some of these uh, uh, run uh run totals for certain events, just very briefly. You know, you're always told as a kid, a walk is as good as a hit. Well, it turns out, not really. It's it's close, but, you know, a walk in the AL in 2012 is worth .301 runs. Whereas in the NL, where there's a, a lower run scoring environment, it was worth .29 runs. So very small difference, but there is a difference. Meanwhile, a single in the AL was worth .456 runs. So it was worth, you know, .15 runs more than a walk. And then even even then there's like a little breakdown, like an infield single was worth .389 runs, whereas an outfield single was worth .469. And if you think about it, it makes sense because a man from second can score on an outfield single usually, whereas an infield single he can't. And, you know, they do this for every type of offensive, defensive play. Uh, so, like, a stolen base is worth 0.2 runs, whereas a caught stealing is worth negative 0.4 runs. So, if you get caught stealing, it's like erasing two stolen bases. So, that's why they say you should have at least a two-thirds, a three-quarter success rate to uh, make it worthwhile. So, how many components are there of war? So, there's the batting, which is some of the stuff that I just touched on. Uh, base running, which I touched on as well. Base running includes things like the run value of a base runner's ability to go from first to third on a single. Uh, so that, of course, boosts the team's ability to score. There's uh, a batter's ability to avoid the double play. So Jim Rice was like the worst of all time in hitting into double plays, and that erased a bunch of his value, which is reflected in his war, but not his batting average. So that, that's where that can really come into play. Uh, defense. So there's a lot of different things that go into defense. Uh, there's turning the double play. Of course, there's range. There's outfield assists, pass balls, and caught stealing for catchers. And these are all compared to the average for their position. Uh, speaking of position, there's also a positional adjustment because an average fielding shortstop is going to be more valuable to his team than an average fielding first baseman because shortstops are harder to find. So the positional adjustment uh, adjust for that, and that kind of changes over time as well. 
So you add all of those runs together and you get the player's runs above average. And then that can be converted to wins based on the run environment of the league. And that's how you get uh, wins above average. And so wait, wait, wait a sec. We're talking about wins above replacement. Why are we talking about wins above average? So wins above replacement starts with wins above average and then makes an adjustment for the replacement level. So why do we do this? Why don't we just use wins above average? Um, now, for a lot of things like com- just looking at how dominant a player's season was or how much of a Hall of Fame case that he has, I think wins above average is a great thing to look at. But it's not really practical in the current major league season, because if you need to replace an underperforming player, you can't just pick up an average player. Those are like valuable commodities. Average players get $10 million a year and you know even more. So a replacement level player is someone that's freely available as like a minor league free agent or something like that. And it's really important to point out that a replacement player is not like a specific player. We're not saying Replacement level is Moro Gomez or something like that. It's a talent level. Uh, so a both Fangraphs and Baseball Reference have agreed that a team full of replacement level players would produce a winning percentage of 294. So what that does is it establishes this level that you can then kind of fill in the difference between replacement level and average. And that's where the final component of war comes. It's the replacement runs. So this is an adjustment based on the amount of time that the player played, how much better was he than a replacement level player. And you put it all together and you get war. So looking at position player war, uh, the implementations that baseball reference and fan graphs have are pretty similar. There are some small differences. The major difference is that they calculate defense differently. Fan graphs uses ultimate zone rating while baseball reference uses DRS or defensive runs saved for recent seasons. But when they don't have that available, they use total zone. Uh, they, the two sites vary a lot in how they calculate pitching war though. Um, baseball reference starts with the runs allowed by that pitcher, and then it makes a bunch of adjustments and comes up with war based on that. So it adjusts for the park, the scoring environment, like the league, uh, the strength of the competition. So if a pitcher happened to face, you know, the really good teams more often, then it's going to give him an adjustment based on that. There's the strength of the defense, which is why uh, you see, Jack Morris having a great win total, but his wins above replacement is a little bit lower. That's because a lot of Jack Morris's value came from having guys like Trammell and Whitaker behind him. Uh, And then it is also adjusted for leverage in the case of relievers. So relievers get a little bit more of a boost because they're pitching in more important situations. Fangraphs, meanwhile, uses FIP, which is fielding independent pitching. It's a formula that's just based on the walks, strikeouts, and home runs that uh, the pitcher allowed. And uh, the reasoning behind that is those are the three things that the pitcher has complete control over. And then there's also a leverage adjustment. So those are the two differences between, those are the differences between uh, fan graphs and baseball reference pitching war. Now, uh, baseball prospectus also has their own implementation of war or warp as they call it. Uh, I'm not too sure about the intricacies of that, but uh, Sean Foreman of baseball reference did post a matrix of the difference between the implementations on all of the sites. And that's over at baseballreference.com slash about. So that's it. So Adam, what would you say if you, if you look at 
you know, Mike Trout. Uh, he has a 10-war season. How would you sum up in one sentence, what does that actually mean? I would say that compared to a freely available player, Mike Trout was worth 10 runs to the Angels. 10 wins. Sorry, 10 wins to the Angels. And so should it be the case that in a given year, if you look at a team's actual win total, it should be approximately above that 294 win percentage by the total amount of war from its players? I mean, does it work out that way or not? Uh, it works out roughly that way. Actually, I did um, a study not too long ago of trying to figure out what a wins above replacement would look like for managers. So what I did was I took every team in history and calculated, based on their war totals, how many wins they should have had. And any difference between that and their actual win and loss totals, I assigned that to the manager to see if there were any interesting trends there. There were some, uh, particularly with Mike Socha, but that is the concept, that it should add up like that. That's interesting. Dalton, do you have specific questions or points that you want to raise? Absolutely. Uh, I never like, with any baseball stat or really anything in general, where people will take one side of an issue and refuse to hear the other side. It's just very frustrating. And that goes for both sides with war. There, there are some people who, you know, post in various you know, sabermetric blogs, not as much over on Hyatt Stats, but a few others who are blindly following war. Now, it's, it's a better stat or, or framework, uh, as Adam pointed out, than something like RBI. But at the same time, you know, you, you can't just cite, oh, this guy had eight war in a season, this guy had seven, therefore the player with eight must be better. It's not a perfect statistic. It's 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 not a little almost far far from it because we can never truly know exactly how many wins that this player added. But the other side of the equation is just awful. The people who will not listen to it because they don't understand it or they're set in their ways. That's what frustrates me with this. And, and you see that a lot. You know, We won't even get into Hawk Harrelson, but I'm sure uh, he'd have some things to say quite on the opposite side of mine. But I think it should just be used as a general tool. It's the best thing we've got to compare players uh, across eras or even in the same to just see who may have been the better player. I'm not going to look at an MVP race see the award was given to a guy with 7.2 war while there was a 7.5 war guy and claim it's a travesty because differences like that are not are not huge and not worth not worth fighting over now when it comes to the different types of war you got your prospectus warp which much like adam i don't know all that much about so i can't really speak on it but fangraphs versus baseball reference now i've always you know leaned more towards the baseball reference war when it comes to pitching, uh, it seems the Fangraphs war uh, helps out guys who I'd almost call innings eaters. You look at uh, their all-time leaders in pitching for wins above replacement, and Mickey and this for Fangraphs, and Mickey Lolich is 51st all-time. Now Lolich was a great pitcher. There's no question about it. Through 4,500 innings and with you know an ERA plus decidedly above 100. But on baseball reference, 
he's ranked 105th, which I think is a much fairer placement. And the guy was a, a good pitcher, but not certainly a great one in terms of his whole career. Only uh, a 104 ERA plus. Yet on fan graphs, you see him at 51st all time. And take a guy like Bob Friend, who I, I feel for. I've always felt for this guy. Uh, not just because I happened to find one of his 1963 Topps cards on the street one day, but because... He's a perfect example of why you can't go by a win-loss. He was 197 and 230 for a career. Uh, and obviously with all those decisions, it's going to be a big innings guy. 39th all-time in Fangraph's pitching war, which I think is just – which is amazing. He's 114th on baseball reference. But it just it, – it seems to reward innings eaters. And, and like Adam mentioned, relievers kind of get the short end of the stick. You look at a guy like – uh, Papelbon in his you know first main season, which I think he gets about five uh, baseball uh, reference for, but uh, maybe only around three on fan graphs. And like Fernando Rodney was about 3.7 last year on fan graphs, only getting 2.3. It, it seems to stiff uh, the relievers a little bit, and that's one of the main reasons why I'm a bigger proponent of uh, baseball reference war. Uh, hitting is fairly similar among the two. But pitching is, is the big divide for me. I'm a pacifist, but I'm 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 big on war, at least when it comes to uh, the saber side of things. And if we had a sound effect for bad jokes, it would be playing right now. <laughs> What's interesting about the relievers is, well, both implementations of war do not give much weight to relief pitchers, and that can mean one of two things: either there's a flaw with war. Or relief pitchers just aren't worth as much as people thought they were. What's in- is that true about closers as well? I yes. Uh, what's interesting about something like the Papelbon season, I think that's where the, the differences between the two implementations really show because Papelbon that season, if I remember correctly, just did not allow runs, period. Like, period. And it's really hard for a player to have a season like that and not allow any base runners or anything like that. So what what's happening is, you know, whether it's skill or luck, he's getting out of any types of jams he gets. And sometimes pitchers go on a tear like that, especially relievers, since they don't pitch as much, they can carry that through just about an entire season. But whereas baseball references war starts with runs allowed, that's going to be reflected more in its war, whereas Fangraphs is looking more at the walks and Ks and things like that. They're looking at the p- players left on base and docking the pitcher for that. Interesting. Dan, what's your take? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a huge uh I'm a huge Hall of Fame fan just as just as you know Adam is and and I I like to look at uh you know baseball from a historical perspective and you know look at Hall of Fame worthiness and and also you probably know my uh my little pet project is all-time teams for each team and so you know I basically like to look at war to you know, try to identify players that who I may have otherwise overlooked. And, you know, as we know from the guys that are that are considered underrated, um, you know, particularly by the Hall of Fame voters, the Bobby Gritches, the Lou Whitakers, the Alan Trammells, you know, a lot of it a lot of what that ends ends up identifying is those players that um that just did a lot of things really well. Um, or a lot of things pretty well. And, uh, and just were never really, you know, remembered as well for that one great thing that they did. And, 
you know, that's, this has been said over and over again. I don't, I don't really need to keep repeating it, but, the, but yeah, but so basically that's what I, that's what I try to do. That's what I would try to tell someone who is, um, you know, not really, or at least maybe has an open mind to trying to get their feet wet with, uh, with using war for objective analysis. And that is just, just, you know, use it as a starting point and try to find, try to identify people that you may have underrated otherwise. And then look at, and then use your other stats if, if that's what you prefer and look at those stats and, uh, and, 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 and try to see why that, uh, try to see why war likes that player better than you otherwise thought. It's, it's a great point. I'll, I'll tell you my feelings on this and it's little bits of things that all three of you said. I, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said, but I'll, I'll sort of tell you my own story. Those who have followed stuff I post on Twitter or on the blog will know that I really favor Ops Plus and ERA Plus as statistics because, to my mind, they're very easy to understand. They're very easy to understand how they take a raw number, a raw on-base plus slugging number or a raw ERA, and how there are some straightforward calculations having to do with parks and league average that gets you to a single number that's on a that, you know, that's based around a hundred being average. Really easy to understand that, um, but it has a lot of context. So those num- that number carries a big a big meaning, and it's a really easy way to distinguish between an averages player, a guy who's a little bit above or a little bit below, or a guy who's well above or well below. I really like those numbers because I understand them. War, I have a little bit of a, a bad relationship with, let's say, only because I don't have the same intuition about what goes into it. Now, Adam gave a really nice explanation, and it's, it's comforting for me, and I think it should be comforting for everyone to understand that, yes, this number is based on hard facts, on hard things that are calculated or that are otherwise countable, and it's all determined using a real formula. It's not fudge factors. It's not judgment calls. It's nothing like that. My uncomfortableness, or I guess I should say discomfort, is based only upon the fact that there are so many components that go into it that I am, I just don't have the intuition. Um, The other thing that I'm slightly uncomfortable about with wins above replacement is maybe a little bit unfair, but it's only that it is a young framework. Uh, You know, statistics have been around for a long, long time, and they evolve over a long period of time. And I tend to think that wins above replacement is going to go through modifications. That doesn't mean that the numbers we're looking at now are wrong or bad or anything, it just means that they're probably non-optimal. At the same time, they're also building on, like, linear weights that wasn't it Pete Palmer who came up with them, like, decades ago? So, I mean, at the same time, I I think the offensive side of it we should be a lot more comfortable with. I mean, defense is still, we're still in the, the, you know, early years of really quantifying defense. So I can see where that hesitance comes from. But I, I feel pretty comfortable with the offensive side of things. Yeah, that, and that's fair. That's a fair comment. But so the way that I use 
war overall is similar to what Dan said, um, but I can give you a more concrete example from that actually happened. I was talking on Twitter, I think last week or maybe the week before, about Lonnie Smith, who's a player that not a lot of people think about. When they think about him, they think about his base running mistake in the 1991 World Series, uh, or they think about uh, his drug use or other things, or maybe if they're feeling charitable, they'll think about the fact that he played in World Series with four different teams, whatever. But truth is, he was actually a really good player. I mean, a really good player. And, okay, maybe I don't want to sit here and say, well, he posted such and such war and such and such year and all the rest of that. But when I was talking about this on Twitter, Adam actually responded and said, gosh, there's another guy who put up 30 war that I never realized. And it's exactly what Dan was saying. This wins above replacement, especially if you look at the career number versus the number of years that the guy played, is a great way of getting a sense of, oh, was this guy, like, not a particularly valuable player? Or was he a somewhat valuable player? Or was he, like, a super valuable player? And it's really good at identifying those players who are sort of somewhere in the middle. Like, you don't need wins above replacement to tell you that, Babe Ruth was incredibly valuable, or Barry Bonds was incredibly valuable, or, you know, pick any, you know, any guy at random, uh, you know, Casey McGeehee has not been particularly valuable or, or whatever. But it's finding those guys who really were very solid and seeing that they have a career war that is some significant number that's, you know, 10, 20, 30, even as high as 40. Sometimes you can find some surprises. And then you can really drill down and look at it. You look at Lonnie Smith and you say, gosh, with the 89 Braves team, that was awful. He put up 8.8, right? And that was 6.1 on offense, 2 on defense. I know they're not additive because the, the position adjustment appears twice. But that's a season that sort of lost the time because that Braves team was terrible that year. And then you can really sit down and look at it and say, well, where did it come from? Well, you know, he was he was really good on fielding, and he was really good with the bat. And uh, I'm just looking as a base runner, he didn't get very much as, you know, with regards to double plays and grounding into him, he didn't get very much. But you can you can really break it down and see where that comes from. And then over his career, you can see that he did get a lot of base running runs over his career. And so my point is that that's the way I like to use it. I'm hoping that over time I will develop better intuition about it and better ability to sort of quickly uh, parse the numbers and really see where they come from. But I do appreciate the fact that those th that data is there underlying underneath. It is there somewhere. Uh, it really is calculated based on hard facts and is meaningful. I think one of the reasons potentially that people may be so anti wins above replacement as a statistic, is that occasionally looking back the, the, and they look at the war numbers, it either knocks down um, in terms of the perceived value of one of their maybe favorite players or player they thought was very good, and they see a guy who they always thought of as being average or mediocre and see they have high war numbers. And one of the guys that I've seen cited, and even myself I find uh, skeptical, is Ben Zobrist. Because if you ask the casual baseball fan, you could ask a thousand of them, who, what player 
provide in the American League provided the most value position player in 2009 and 2011. I don't think anyone would say Ben Zobrist. No, I don't think one person would say it, which is interesting. Um, and in, he put up 8.6 WAR and 8.8 in uh, those years, respectively. A lot of the value coming from defense, but also he had some all right offensive numbers as well. I just think that's one of the things you know. See how they talk about Jim Rice being the most feared hitter for a decade, and then you look at his total WAR number. And it's really not necessarily Hall-worthy. I, I think that's probably where a lot of the uh, disdain for war comes in, but that's just me. And that's, you know, what you're saying is true of all advanced statistics as they come along. Right. The way w- they always have something that differs from the common perception. So then the first line of defense is always like, that can't be right because it's not, I know what I saw and that's not what I saw. Yeah, a classic one is Steve Garvey versus Ron Say. I mean, that's a that's a good one, too. I just wanted to touch on uh, the way that I kind of use war, too. I mean, I, I probably set off this impression that I live and die by war, but I, I use it as a mechanism to drive what I research. Uh, like when I started doing all this Hall of Stats stuff, it shocked me that Rick Russell rated as a Hall of Famer, and not just by a little bit. He rated as like a serious Hall of Famer, like no questions asked. So I started looking into this and did like kind of months of research off and on, and I put it all in a a post on High Heat Stats um, back in February. And, you know, some of it uh, is, it's really unexplainable as to why he's underrated. I mean, he actually has a better winning percentage and better ERA plus than Nolan Ryan. So that, that that goes back to some of the perception here. And Russell pitched a long time, too, so th- these types of things add up. But uh, it goes to things that aren't really captured in ERA+, Plus, which you mentioned earlier, Andy, because Russell pitched behind some of the worst defenses ever. And that's just not going to be captured in ERA at all because, you know, some of it's going to be captured in unearned runs. But, you know, that's only when an error is assigned, and that – as we know, doesn't happen all that often. It's not really capturing terrible range and things like that. So the more and more I looked into it, the more I realized, okay, this is why War is saying Rick Russell is a Hall of Famer or Larry Walker is a Hall of Famer or Gene Tennis is probably a Hall of Famer. And, you know, it, it just gives me the, some things to research, and I start believing once I look into the underlying data. Now, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you explain how war for a pitcher does take into account his, the defense behind him? Yeah, there's a defensive adjustment uh, based on the total zone of the defenders behind him. Oh, so it is straightforward. Yeah. Interesting. All right, so that's a wrap on this week's podcast. That was fun. Uh, Thanks, guys. Looking forward to doing it again. Me as well. Goodbye. Yeah, really great, Andy. Thanks for uh, for having us. Had a blast. Just make sure you uh, give war a chance there, folks.
All right, that's episode two in the books. Thank you very much for tuning in. And just a couple of notes for you. Uh, you can follow various folks here on Twitter. You can follow me at High Heat Stats. You can follow Adam at Baseball Twit. You can follow Dalton at DMAC1291. You can follow Dan at underscore left field. Also, if you are listening to the podcast via iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could go on there and leave at least a rating, if not also a review for the podcast. It definitely helps other people find us and makes a big difference. Finally, uh, something I neglected to mention last week, uh, we do have an email address set up, feedback at highheatstats.com. If you want to let us know something that you liked or didn't like, or if you have a baseball question that you would like to get answered in a future podcast, go ahead and email it to us, and if we can get to it, we most certainly will. Uh, once again, it's feedback at highheatstats.com, and you can either send it to us as text, or if you send it to us as audio, we might actually just throw it into the podcast and play your message. And just a final reminder, we're sponsored by BaseballReference.com's Play Index, and it helps us out if you subscribe to the Play Index. And just go back to the start of this one to be reminded how you can save 3 bucks on a subscription. Thanks a lot, and see you soon. It's going to be a robot Dan voice saying, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> All right. So uh, I, just want to, I just want to give a little shout out to, to Brian. Yank me, Brian. But uh, anyway. Um, in that context, it's not okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that was in reference to last week's bloopers. But anyhow. At least we know Andy's paying attention to Dan. <laughs> uh, I am. I am. Carry on. Daniel? Yes, here. Present. I like to hear present. So that's, you know, that's fit right there. Mm hmm. Someone, someone's pouring a Coke soda. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's spiked, don't worry. All right, all right, cool. Because Brian's the fangrass guy, so. What the hell is fangrass? <laughs> that. It's so going in the bloopers section, <laughs> right there. Absolutely. Dalton's talking dirty on Twitter, by the way, in case anybody doesn't know that. <laughs> it, it, know. it was perfectly uh, normal before Andy decided to uh, drag it into the gutter. I don't know what you're talking about, bud. That will not go in the bloopers. <laughs> but Andy, I gotta say, maybe you know, maybe you should play matchmaker. This it's it's been a rough year for me. I've struck out more than Chris Carter. It's, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs>